This is the Sasquatch's Monsters of the Clubhouse. Tales of when athletes throw it all away and end up behind bars or worse. Hello, it's the Sasquatch and thank you very much for tuning in once again to Monster of the Clubhouse Volume 3. This is Chapter 5 and it's Part 1 of the Black Sox Scandal. The Black Sox Scandal is by a distance the oldest scandal I'll cover in the series. Um, and while it's definitely not the first, I don't think any sporting scandal ever influenced popular culture in such a way as the 1919 Black Sox scandal. So bit of an overview, the Black Sox scandal was a major league baseball game fixing scandal in which eight members of the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for money from a gambling syndicate led by Arnold Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein, nicknamed The Brain, was an American racketeer, crime boss, businessman and gambler who became a kingpin of the Jewish mob in New York City. Rothstein was widely reputed to have organised corruption in professional athletics including conspiring to fix the 1919 World Series. He was also the mentor of future crime bosses Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello as well as numerous others. According to crime writer Leo Catcher, Rothstein transformed organized crime from a tuggish activity by hoodlums into a big business running like a corporation with himself at the top. According to author Rich Cohen Rothstein was the person who first realized that prohibition was a business opportunity, a means to enormous wealth, who understood the truths of early century capitalism and came to dominate them. His notoriety inspired several fictional characters based on his life, portrayed in contemporary and later short stories, novels, musicals and films, including the character Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby. Rothstein refused to pay a large debt resulting from a fixed poker game and was murdered in 1928 at the age of 46. His illegal empire was broken up and distributed among a number of other underworld organisations. So a bit of a background to the White Sox. The White Sox club owner Charles Comiskey himself a prominent Major League Baseball player from 1882 to 1894, was wildly disliked by his players and was resented for his stinginess. Comiskey, who as a player had taken part in the Players League Labour Rebellion in 1890, long had a reputation for underpaying his players, even though they were one of the top teams in the league and had already won the 1917 World Series. In what would seem pretty alien to player power in modern day sport, because of baseball's reserve clause, any player 
who refused to accept the contract, was prohibited from playing baseball on any other professional team under the auspices of organised baseball. Players could not change teams without permission from their current team and without a union the players had no bargaining power. Comiskey was probably no worse than most owners. In fact, Chicago actually had the largest team payroll in 1919. But in the era of the reserve clause, gamblers could find players on many teams looking for extra cash, and they did. The White Sox clubhouse was divided into two fractions. One group represented the more straight-laced players, later dubbed the Clean Sox. A group that included players like second baseman Eddie Collins, a graduate of Columbia College, catcher Ray Schalk, and pitchers Red Faber and Dickie Kerr. By contemporary accounts, the two fractions rarely spoke to each other, either on or off the field and the only thing they had in common was the resentment of Comiskey. A meeting of White Sox players, including those committed to going ahead and those just ready to listen, took place on December 21st in Chick Gandel's room at the Asonia Hotel in New York City. Buck Weaver was the only player to attend the meetings who did not receive money. Nevertheless, he was later banned along with the others for knowing about the fix but not reporting it. Although he hardly played in the series, utility infielder Fred McMullen got word of the fix and threatened to report the others unless he was in on the payoff. As a small coincidence, McMullen was a former teammate of William Sleepy Bill Burns who had a minor role in the fix. Both had played for the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League, Coast League and Burns had previously pitched for the White Sox in 1909 and 1910. Star outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson was mentioned as a participant but did not attend the meetings and his involvement is disputed. The scheme got an unexpected boost when the straight-laced Faber could not pitch due to a bout of the flu. Years later, Schalk said that if Faber had been available the fix would have likely never happened, since Faber would have almost certainly started games instead of two of the alleged conspirators, pitchers Eddie Jacoti and Lefty Williams. On October 1st, the day of game one, there were rumours amongst gamblers that the series was fixed, and a sudden influx of money being bet on Cincinnati caused the gods against them to fall rapidly. These rumours also reached the press box, where a number of correspondents, including Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Herald and Examiner, and ex-player and manager Christy Matthewson, resolved to compare notes on any plays and players that they felt were questionable. However, most fans and observers took the series at face value. On October 2nd, the Philadelphia Bulletin published a poem which would quickly prove to be ironic. Still, it really don't matter. After all, who wins the flag? Good clean sport is what we're after. 
and we aim to make our brag. To each near or distant nation, whereon shines the sporting sun, that of all our games gymnastic, baseball is the cleanest one. After throwing a strike with his first pitch of the series, Chicote's second pitch struck Cincinnati leadoff hitter Maury Wraith in the back, delivering a prearranged signal, confirming the player's willingness to go through with the fix. In the fourth inning, Chicote made a bad throw to Swede Reisberg at second base. Sports writers found the unsuccessful double play to be suspicious. Williams, one of the eight men out, lost three games, a series record. Rookie Dickie Kerr, who is not part of the fix, won both of his starts. But the gamblers were now reneging on their promised progress payments, basically to be paid after each game lost, claiming that all the money was let out on bets and was in the hands of the bookmakers. After game 5, angry about the non-payment of promised money, the players involved in the fix attempted to double cross the gamblers and won games 6 and 7 of the best of 9 series. Before game 8, threats of violence were made in the gamblers behalf against players and family members. Williams started game 8 but gave up 4 straight 1 out hits for 3 runs before manager Kid Gleason relieved them. The White Sox lost game 8 and the series. On October 9th, 1999, besides Weaver, the players involved in the scandal received $5,000 each or the equivalent of $75,000 in today's money with Gandal taking 35000 or the equivalent of 522000 in today's money. Rumours of the fix dogged the White Sox throughout the 1920 season as they battled the Cleveland Indians for the American League pennant and stories of corruption touched players on other clubs as well. At last, in September 1920, a grand jury were convened to investigate. Chicote confessed his participation in the scheme to the grand jury on September 28th. On the eve of the final season series, the White Sox were in a virtual tie for the first place with the Indians. The Sox would need to win all three of the remaining games and then hope for Cleveland to stumble, as the Indians had more games left to play than the Sox. Despite the season being on the line, Comiskey suspended the seven White Sox still in the majors. Gandal had not returned to the team in 1920 and was playing semi-professional baseball. He said they had no choice but to suspend them, even though the action likely cost the Sox any chance of winning that year's American League pennant. The Sox lost two of the three games in the final series against the St. Louis Browns and finished in second place, two games behind Cleveland. The grand jury handed down its decision on October 22nd, 1920, and eight players and five gamblers were implicated. The indictments included nine counts of conspiracy to defraud, 
the 10 players not implicated in the gambling scandal as well as manager Kid Gleason were each given bonus checks in the amount of 1500 or the equivalent of $19,400 by Comiskey in the fall of 1920. The amount equaling the difference between the winners and losers share for participation in the 1919 World Series. The trial began on June 27, 1921 in Chicago but was delayed by Judge Hugo Friend because two defendants, Ben Franklin and Carl Zork, claimed to be ill. Right fielder Shannon Collins was named as the wrong party in the indictments, accusing his corrupt teammates of having cost him $1,784 as a result of the scandal. Before the trial, key evidence went missing from the Cook County Courthouse, including the signed confessions of Chicote and Jackson, who subsequently recanted their, their confessions. Some years later, the missing confessions reappeared in the possession of Comiskey's lawyer. On July 1st, the prosecution announced their former White Sox player, Sleepy Bill Burns, who was under indictment for his part in the scandal had turned state's evidence and would testify. During jury selection on July 11th, several members of the current White Sox team, including manager Kid Gleason, visited the courthouse, chatting and shaking hands with the indicted ex-players. At one point, they even tickled Weaver, who was known to be quite ticklish. Jury selection took several days, but on July 15th, 12 jurors were finally impaneled in the case. Trial testimony began on July 18, 1921, with prosecutors Charles Gorman outlined the evidence he planned to present against the defendants. Scores of small boys jammed away into the seats, and as Mr. Gorman told of the alleged sellout, they repeatedly looked at each other in awe, remarking under their breaths. What do you think of that? Or, well, I'll be darned. White Sox president Charles Comiskey was then called to the stand and became so agitated with questions being posed by the defence that he rose from the witness chair and shook his fists at the defendant's counsel. The most explosive testimony began the following day, July 19th, when Burns took the stand and admitted that members of the White Sox had intentionally fixed the 1999 World Series. Burns mentioned the involvement of Rothstein among others and testified that Chicote had, had threatened to throw the ball clear out of the park if needed to lose a game. After additional testimony and evidence, on July 28th, the defense rested and the case went to the jury. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before returning verdicts of not guilty on all charges for all the accused players. As you can imagine, the verdict of not guilty was, was a bit of a black eye for not just the city of Chicago and not just the White Sox, but also baseball as a whole, which in the late in the early 1990s, 1900s rather, 
was very much the people's game and it was all that was great about America it's honesty and for a world series the pinnacle of sports to quite clearly have been tampered with by criminal organizations it was not something they were going to just let slide so in response to the incident judge Kinesaw Mountain Landis was appointed as the first commissioner of baseball he was given absolute control over the sport to restore its integrity but we'll park it there for now I'll be back on Thursday with part two um, again as always make sure to like comment subscribe massively helps you Sasquatch out here in America work is in trouble we've offshored our manufacturing sent away good jobs and lost so much ability to make things American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20.